everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, which is also home to Hartman Rocks, which is probably Colorado's best-kept secret for epic spring mountain biking. At Hartman's, you can choose from more than 40 miles of single track, ranging from fun and flowy to quite steep and technical. Okay, today we are talking with Chris Porter, the founder of Mojo Suspension and Geometron Bikes, about his background on two wheels, including starting out with motorcycles, the early days of Mojo, modifying shocks in a carpeted rental house, the progression of bike geometry, and much more. And as you'll soon find out if you didn't know already, Chris is quite a storyteller with a whole lot of ideas on a whole lot of different topics, including the importance of doing wheelies. Who knew? So let's go ahead and get to the conversation that our bike editor, David Golay, recently had with Chris. Here we go. Well, Chris, thanks for coming on. And uh, how are you today? And where are you today? No problems for coming on. It's a pleasure. Um, I'm fine today. The sun is shining. And we're in Wirestone Business Park, which is just outside Monmouth, where the uh, workshop is based. It's a beautiful old, I'd say, 18th century estate with a deer park attached. It's a nice play to work. Yeah, sounds pretty good. And looks like you are uh, sitting in your, your van for the uh, audio uh, studio, I guess, for this. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And it's probably the most comfortable seat I own. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, perfect. Appreciate you uh, working on the audio quality and glad it's comfortable to be in there. No problem. Well, so to start off, but you tell us a little bit about how you got into mountain bikes in the first place. I gather you kind of started off with motorcycles and moved into mountain bikes as the more affordable version. Yeah, I mean, obviously, growing up, we were riding bikes and building bikes out of bits of other bikes. And we were constantly riding bicycles growing up. And then when BMXs started coming over from the States, got into those a little bit but by then I'd kind of grown quite tall and uh, after <laughs> after getting my uh, I think it was a Putch Murray uh, BMX bike welded about 30 times there was more bird shit welding on that frame than there was original steel by the end of it I kind of gave up with the bicycles and moved on to the motorcycles because they kind of for a bit stronger i was just a bit early into that market and then uh mountain bikes started coming over from the states and i rode one in a, a little warehouse job i was doing i thought this is amazing it's got such low gears you could wheelie all the way down the aisle of the warehouse but i didn't buy one um they just seemed ridiculously expensive at the time so I got myself a job working on a motorcycle magazine, wanted to race motorcycles so much, but really, really expensive game. And so I 
that's when I started looking at the mountain bikes and started thinking, now they're getting somewhere and now they're racing just downhill. That looks pretty cool. Yeah, but uh, just started racing mountain bikes, mostly downhill. Uh, did a couple of little cross-country races and, and yeah, just realized the fun of riding a bicycle again. Um, and I didn't have to re-weld them every weekend. That was pretty cool, so... <laughs> Yeah, that does help. So just kind of to place this about what time frame are we talking about for when you started racing downhill and with some seriousness? I think probably the first one was probably about 93, I think. So that was probably the only the second or third year of mountain bike racing downhill in Britain at all. Yeah, before before then, I don't think you could find downhill races. I did a couple of little cross-country races. Um one of which had a downhill start, which was great because I was in the lead going into the woods and then every other fucker overtook me on the hill. So uh, <laughs> was pretty much in last place by the end of the climb. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like you found your uh, your home in downhill a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was, it was, it was good fun and it was um, a great few years, that sort of early to late 90s, traveling constantly traveling every weekend going to new places meeting all the meeting all the people that you spend all your weekends with it was a great time um and it's a good excuse for going off and spending the whole weekend riding your bike you know there's no better excuse than racing to do that and so while you were doing all of this what were you doing for work and when did you start really making mountain biking not just your hobby, but also a career? Well, I think it was um, about late 95 uh, that I first bought. I bought some little shock absorbers from a company in Taiwan. I think they were making the mountain cycles rear shocks for the San Andreas at the time. And it was it was a nice little shock absorber. It had a full fully configured motorcycle style piston with a stack of shims on it it's really nice little thing and i bought some shocks off those guys and um started selling them as aftermarket shocks with laser cut linkages um as mojo suspension in 96 straight from the motorcycle journalist job straight into working for myself at mojo and it uh yeah, it worked okay. It was uh, it kept me out of trouble. Yeah, so you've, you've been at it for quite a long time then. Yeah, yeah. The first house we were in, it was a rented house, and the money that we'd saved up for the mortgage, we spent on tools and a lathe and shocks from Taiwan. So uh, that, that spunked the mortgage deposit into... Uh, and then after, when we'd finished in the rental place, we had to replace the carpet and paint all the walls because it was covered in oil from the inevitable numbers of explosions that you get while you're trying to figure out how shock absorbers work. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that would, uh, wouldn't would go over particularly well. But No, at least they had a nice, uh, nice carpet to move back into. So, Right. Well, yeah, good on you for, for replacing it at least, I suppose. <laughs> so... Where does where did Mojo go from there after starting with 
Taiwanese shocks and uh, some homemade linkage parts. What was next for the company? We were doing lots of little things that you couldn't get in the UK back in the sort of mid-90s to late-90s. There were lots of people doing hop-ups for suspension and bikes that already existed. So people like Reesey Racing uh, and White Brothers were doing catalogs full of parts that were really difficult to get hold of in the UK. Um, so we're doing a little bit of that and also converting forks. At the time, the Judy uh, was the fork of choice. Um, I think the Judy XC was 60 mil travel or something. I think the Judy DH was 80 mil travel. Oh my God, so much travel. Yeah. And uh, so we were putting conversion kits in for the Reesey Racing cartridges, the White Brothers cartridge, coil conversions and things like that. We were doing all, all sorts of little suspension jobs and service as well because there was nobody doing servicing at the time and nobody trying to understand really how how the shims made a difference other than motorcycle companies. There weren't many bicycle companies trying to figure out how to do that. So we were... We were definitely in at the at the basement level in the UK. There were quite a few sort of suspension service and hop-up companies that were doing tuning in the States. We were uh, in a, a group of just one in the UK. So, And then it, you know, it took off pretty quick. Yeah, kind of identified a need in, in the area and just went to fill it. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Uh, and it also allows you to play with something that you enjoy doing yourself as well. So, you know, if you're putting those parts into your own forks and find that they're not working very well, then at least you've got a possibility to solve the problem for the other people that have already bought them. So, yeah, it's... And it's definitely more interesting than uh, working for someone else, working for yourself. Yeah, so it seems like you've got a pretty good thing going there. In addition to all of the suspension work, one of the things that you've really become known for in the last while is uh, experiments with bike geometry and pushing that quite a bit further than a lot of people have. As I kind of understand it, some of your early forays into really going substantially longer in particular in bikes were with some of the Mondraker bikes that you spent some time on and were, were working with a bit. Tell us a bit about that project and how that all got started and i was also working on a mountain bike magazine um in the late 90s as mojo was becoming established and um you know and some of the quite a lot of the things that i wrote of certain bikes back then were the same things that i i was saying right into the 2000s where i was saying if only this was longer and lower and slacker, you know, those, the, the three sort of buzzwords of the last few years. Um, it's not that there was any kind of eureka moment. It's just that a longer bike is more stable. A slacker bike steers more and allows you to lean over more. And a lower bike allows you to put your weight 
in the correct place in the corner. And um, and there are other advantages of all of these things. But it comes from before that, you know, uh, when I was riding for the motorcycle magazine, although I wasn't a, a tester, if you like, everyone on the magazine had to do everything because there were only four or five of us and we were publishing three magazines. You know, it's not, you know, that's a, that's a lot of words, that's a lot of photos, that's a lot of uh, layout work. Uh, you, everyone's got to do everything. And um, there was a particular few days that, you know, sticks in my mind. We We all took the sports bikes of the day uh, down to a track in the south of France, which was, ah, it was fantastic fun because riding sports bikes down a dual carriageway through France at uh, 150 miles an hour, overtaking people and undertaking people and racing each other. It's it an insane trip. Um, but when we got to the track, we had... I think it was a one-minute track. I think the fastest laps were somewhere around sort of 53 seconds, something like that. So you were talking about a one-minute track, and we had about 15 motorcycles, some superbike racing homologation specials, and some fairly old-fashioned sort of bikes that had been tarted up to look at, to try and make them look like hot new stuff. And... It's really stark to see how the different shapes of the different bikes, how it allowed you to ride in different parts of the track. If the whole point of the game was wheeling down the back straight, then you definitely chose the YZF7750R, which was a, a homologation special Yamaha 750. It was really short. It was really squat it had a it had a canted engine that allowed the front wheels to come in even closer so you know turning was astoundingly fast but for a rider like me that wasn't you know superbike special <laughs> level racer um what i liked about it was the fact you could just pick the rear wheel up and do the whole straight and you had you had a really short bike to play with the to play with the balance point on the wheelie whereas let's say the gsxr 750 which was an older design it had a much slacker head angle the the bike was much longer the frame was really flexy you had to be a lot more aggressive to play with the wheelies on that but what you could do on that which certainly I couldn't at my skill level on the sharper, more race-focused bikes, is you could play with the throttle and the power delivery on the side of the tyre. It was a lot more calm and predictable on the side of the tyre. So you felt like you could get away with pushing that bike harder. If you like, the envelope of that bike was wider. It was generally slower in lap time than the race bike but you could certainly push it harder in certain parts of the corner and and we also we also noted that um there are different 
things that um, affect geometry as well. So we had two bikes that were absolutely identical, apart from the engine size, had exactly the same chassis, same rim size, same tires. We had two Ducatis that were identical apart from the actual engine displacement, and we all went faster on the weaker one. There was a lot of there was a lot of time on that particular track apart from the the straight that I was just talking about where you wheelie down the straight if you're actually pushing hard you actually only stood upright for a very short amount of time before lining yourself up for the next corner so although the more powerful bike should have gone around the lap quicker you realize that even with the same handling even with the same clicker settings even with the same everything on it that the power delivery of the bigger motor was getting in the way when you're on the side of the tire um which again someone of a of a more aggressive uh, uh, a better racer might have different results from it but certainly all of us at the time and there were some fast riders there we all went faster on the smaller bike and that that feeds into the bicycle geometry thing everything feeds into everything else you can't just say longer slacker lower that's great yeah but then we look at the 2013 video of Josh Bryceland riding the Bronson at the launch and we go okay that's a tiny bike he's a really big bloke uh, the bike seems to be all the wrong shape Fuck me, I wish I could ride like that, though. <laughs> With a bicycle, the rider is everything. The experiments where we started started experimenting with geometry about the time where we started um, sponsoring Fabian Burrell and the Mondraker team. He just... We, we were sponsoring Fabian as Mojo Suspension, not as Fox. It was us from the UK that were sponsoring Fabian. I'd met him at a show and we were we were helping him with the rear shocks on his Kona. And he's really interested in geometry, really interested in suspension, just interested in trying whatever he could do to go faster. He certainly wanted longer slacker lower uh, i think the leger bike was 58 degrees yeah head head tube angle 58 degrees i'm pretty sure that's that's what he said that was um and they'd taken the swing arm from kona ground the the dropouts off and welded in a new section so they had something like a 475 mil swing arm and added a section in at the head tube as well and then uh, you know made it all look nice but literally they'd taken the bike and i think on that bike they'd even turned do you remember it had a uh a, a brake torque arm right this would have been a stab at that point right yeah yeah i think so and they even turned the brake torque arm over so that he could make the suspension squat by using the rear brake. So uh, he would think about every aspect. So it was inevitable that whatever Fabian did 
with Mondraker. He'd want something that was longer and slacker and lower than the market was providing. It just so happens that we were already asking Orange for that same thing with our team. And when me and Fabian did, I think it was the first Trans-Provence that we did, which was about 2011, Cesar Rojo was there with the prototype of the Mondraker forward geometry with the 10 mil direct mount stem yeah, and so he had, essentially, he had a medium frame with an XL length front triangle. So he'd taken that 60 mil stem or whatever it was and put a 10 mil stem on it. And immediately it made sense. Yeah, that, that winter, Fabian was still riding the old Kaiser. That's right. So we turned up for the first test uh, sessions with Fabian and Paul Walton, and we had a really great time. Uh, it was really rewarding. We spent a lot of time in the workshop early mornings, late evenings, changing the suspension and, and optimizing for friction and looking for little advantages that we could find to try and meet what Fabian was after um it was really really rewarding we had this sort of linear development as we worked on the bikes the bikes got faster the, the stopwatch showed that the times were getting quicker and we had this development process that was super rewarding then fabian got his new sumum uh which was i think you know centered around 62 degree head angle so he could make it slacker or steeper with head angle inserts we put the suspension that we've had from the kaiser on it and he immediately went faster and then we started playing with it and we found that he could ride anything you know if we were on the coil fork he could ride any one of three different spring rates and it would be fine. We could put any one of four different spring rates on the rear shock, and he would be fine. We could put too much compression on, and he would be fine. We could put too much rebound on, and he'd be fine. It didn't really affect the outcome. So what we realized was, with the previous bike, and to a certain extent with all our tuning in the past, you're messing the suspension up, to try and get to a better dynamic geometry. And when we got to a bike that was long enough and low enough and slack enough, the geometry was in an envelope that worked almost whatever we did with the suspension. It was really difficult to get it outside of the envelope. You really had to try hard to be stupid to make it not work. Yes. Uh, and So in terms of me and my bikes... I'd been riding downhill bikes on and off as my trail bike for years anyway because they just handled better. I thought, I always figured if I'm going to have to pedal this thing around, I don't want to have to push it back down the hill. That's the bit that I really enjoy. So I'd rather push it up <laughs> and be on it when I'm going down. So quite often I would put a decent set of gears 
on a downhill bike and just have another set of wheels with trail tires on. And that's how I'd go out for a trail ride. Then I guess the revolution in mountain bikes picked up pace and uh, we had trail centers being built and trail bikes being used for more and more adventurous things and megavalanche and various other sort of proto enduro things going on. So I started experimenting with the trail bikes, um, which were getting more legit. Uh, you know, they were starting to look like, you know, 150 travel bikes front and rear. There were, uh, there were bikes starting to come from the free ride scene with single crowns that were long enough travel and um, started experimenting with uh, angle set headsets and because we were lucky enough to own a suspension workshop we could shorten shocks and make custom shocks uh, to drop the bottom bracket height to the uh, to the angles that we wanted to the height and angles we wanted but we always came up against this final restriction which was however you arrange the two wheels and the angles and and the parts between them there was never enough length between them there's just not enough metal in the in the frame tubes so in 2000 and i think it was 13 we contacted nikolai try and get them to make us a custom uh, ION, ION 16, with the angles that we wanted. And uh, that worked out quite well. Uh, they made that for us. It arrived, I think, for January 2014, when I was away in Spain with a, I called it my Franken-Dune. So I had uh, a Mondraker Dune and a Mondraker Summum uh, and took the best bits of both of those and made one bike out of it. So it was a Frankenstein sort of forward geometry Mondraker Dune, but with an even longer swing arm. Right. So the, the Dune was kind of the uh, enduro bike and the Summum was That's the, right. the DH bike, right? So you were oh, sorry. No, it was from the Zenith. Sorry, not the Summum. So I had a think I had a linkage and a swing arm from the Zenith, I think, uh, and I had to make a different length shock to make it work. But so in general, you were cobbling together a longer rear triangle onto the enduro bike, and yeah, and and in the end, that bike was at sixty three degrees head angle. It was at, I think it was at thirteen hundred millimeters or just under wheelbase. And it had a 450 chain stay. And I think I was running that one with a 30 mil stem. I can't remember what the reach was, but, uh, you know, it was, in a way, there was a lot of bike. It had a 510 mil seat tube. There was a lot of bike there, but it started to be big enough and, and long enough and slack enough to be really doing the job well. So when the bike from Nikolai arrived with it, almost identical numbers, with those numbers, one of the lads at uh, work as was, 
was saying, well, are you not going to ride the new bike? And I was just saying to him, no, well, actually, there's a few more things I want to try on this first to try and understand what each change makes. And I've spent the last sort of four weeks on this. So I'm just going to finish this. And then I said, well, why don't you ride it? And he was a good few inches shorter than me. I'm not massively shorter, but he would always have choose, chosen a, a smaller bike than me usually. And uh, he'd been riding his bike all winter on this particular trail that we went out and rode. And the very first time down that trail on that bike, the first time he'd pointed it downhill, he beat his own time on the bikes that he's been riding for the last six months, eight months. So we got to the bottom of the trail. We're like, well, that's your bike, isn't it? That's not big <laughs> enough for me now. <laughs> so uh, we ordered the second one there and then and uh, ordered a slightly bigger one. And, and that was the point at which we started the Geometron project because it seemed like Everyone that saw the bike was super interested in it and all the journalists that came round to have a go loved the idea of it and gave it loads of column inches. So uh, we just thought, do you know what? We'll buy 10 of them and see if people want to buy them. We'd already found the way of getting the bikes that we wanted, that had the angles that we wanted, um, but we just wondered whether anybody else would. And we sold out almost immediately. So that was the start um, the start of the Geometron thing. That was long-winded way of getting around. <laughs> a lot of good stuff in there, though. That was, that was fun. And, uh, well, speaking of the Geometrons, I've owned a G16 since 2017, I think. Been on it for quite some time. And the thing that you said earlier about sort of trying to turn a downhill bike into a trail bike and riding that, totally resonated. When I bought that bike, basically my thought process was I want the closest approximation to a downhill bike that I'm actually happy to pedal uphill as well. And got that G16, started with a, I think a 170 or 180 millimeter travel 36 on it, decided that that wasn't really stiff enough, pretty quickly lowered a uh, Fox 40 to I think 180 millimeters of travel and put that on. And all of a sudden just had this bike that, you know, wasn't quite a downhill bike, but awfully close in a lot of ways. And, but also still weighed something kind of reasonable and had a seated position that you could bring it back up to the top for. And it was fantastic. It was kind of a revelation. So modern downhill bikes uh, and suspension had reached a point. Yeah. in that sort of 2015, um, 2017, sort of area where 200 mil travel was too much for most people. Um, most people are not aggressive enough and fast enough to make a downhill bike dynamic. The, the speed at which you have to hit obstacles to make a 200 mil downhill bike work well um, or the amount of leg movement and arm movement that you have to use to to overcome that 200 mil travel. Most people do not possess 
that speed, that skill, that leg length. And you just see people riding downhill bikes like a passenger, you know, just wallowing down the hill, um, hitting everything because because they can't use the features of the trail, the smaller features, to get them off the ground to link things together in any kind of creative way. Whereas put that same person on the same shaped bike, but with 160 travel, and they'll find that that's a lot poppier. And they'll find that rather than using the only way that they can get into the air is off a full ramp, then they're starting to pop off tree roots and use use smaller obstacles to start linking parts of trails up and and to be honest a 160 to 175 trail bike as you explained with your g16 with the 180 forks on the front there are very few parts of a downhill track where the bandwidth of what's coming at the rider gets out of hand for the for the for the skill of a decent rider um there are very few parts of a downhill track where essentially 200 millimeters is absolutely necessary so you end up with a situation where the 160 to 175 bike is going to be faster than the downhill bike in most places on most tracks that aren't World Cup steep and rough. And let's face it, most people are not going to point their bike down, you know, Champery or Lourdes or, you know, um, they're not going to be doing these World Cup tracks. So overbiked, is the downhill bike it's sucking the life out of their legs and it's taking the creativity out of their riding so to step back to where you did and put the downhill wheels and tires on your trail bike and smash that down downhill tracks and find different lines around the bits where the bandwidth of the trail coming at you is too much which is what just a few percent of most tracks um that's been that's been what um i think that's been what's been the 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 key takeaway from the last few years with mountain biking we're riding way harder trails on our trail bikes than we used to ride on our downhill bikes and we're pedaling to the top of them absolutely i mean the trails that i ride most often around here are things that 10 years ago i was pushing a downhill bike up and now i'm yeah, riding them on a, you know, enduro bike and pedaling up to the top and getting way more laps in, way faster, and riding the same stuff basically. And I, and I'm also gonna guess that you're probably riding more creative lines, and and the and the and the lines on that track have changed because of the bikes that people are riding. So what we noticed in the UK was when we moved away from the push-up tracks and the uplift tracks the corners stopped being square and we had beautiful round corners again <laughs> because you have to invest you have to invest so much energy into getting to the top and to a certain extent a little bit of in um investment in terms of skill and commitment to ride 
are sure to travel by with, let's say, trail tyres on the way down, that um, it takes away the skidders. And um, so the, 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 trails, the trail shapes kind of changed. It was... Um, and for, for a few years, we had essentially just like trail nirvana. Um, everyone had trails where they were essentially out of reach of the uplift guys and out of reach of the cross-country guys on the way down. You had, you, had, you had this sort of window of opportunity where you had your gnarly trails and quite difficult way to the top, so you'd weeded out a certain number of people. Um, and then the e-bikes came along and spoiled it. So now we've got square corners again. Uh, yeah, I'm curious about that, actually. Where you are in the UK, sort of how ubiquitous have e-bikes become at this point? It's it, it's difficult. Uh, the, I mean, as a as someone that's come from motorcycles, I, I only see the faults with e-bikes. You know, I, I've got not very many good things to say about them. I just think if you want a motorcycle, you should get a motorcycle license, invest in it and tell your mum that you're now riding a motorcycle. Most, you know, most kids didn't ride motorbikes because their mums didn't want them to. You know, it's like, get a grip. Um, but the... So I I only think of the negatives, and I'm probably the wrong person to ask, but of course they're fun, and of course they open up the trail to a lot more people, and they open up a lot more distance for people that have only got an hour uh, to burn. Of course they've got a place, but what offends me about them is that it's taken them this long to get rid of you know some of the really worst aspects of the power delivery, they're only just starting to feel okay. And we've still got a rear derailleur hanging off the back. You know, come on. You've got all that extra power. You've got several rotating shafts in the motor already. Just put a gearbox in there. Get it done. But uh, that's not how bicycles get built. They're built by component suppliers. And, you know, it's um, you've just slotted a motor into something that wasn't designed for a motor. Um, to the point where most of the, you know, we do a lot of aftermarket suspension and there aren't many, there are not many e-bikes out there that have got a decent shock absorber in. If you find a any brand with an enduro style frame that has a 205 or trunnion or a 230 uh, normal eyelet shock with sort of 65 mil shock travel and 160 to 170 rear wheel travel that same bike but the e version in their range the space for the shock's been eaten into by the battery and the motor so that's what's gone the the bike hasn't been designed back to the suspension the suspension has been designed a way to meet the new stuff coming in and you end up with a 210 by 50 shock or something with loads more leverage and a and a guy with the very slightest dad bod of 95 kilos can't find a spring that that will give him enough support so yeah they're just they're just not a finished product to me at the moment and and I, I look forward to the day when they are because, you know, I love two wheels of all sorts 
and uh, I will ride one when they're good. Um, but at the moment, um, I've got great bicycles that are keeping me fit and I've got great motorcycles that are giving me upper body strength as well. I've got both things going on and I ride my bicycle trails on my bicycle. I ride my motorcycle trails on my motorcycle. If I ride my motorcycle trails on my bicycle, I would feel like, what's going on here? This is broken. I'm going so slow. What's going on here? And that's what's going to happen to people that try an e-bike. They always ride them on the same trails they ride a normal bicycle. You can't then go back to your normal bicycle. So you end up as an e-biker, which is great. Mm. And I hope you get you know, better e-bikes soon, all those e-bikers, and you get your um, software up, updates as soon as they learn how to make make the power delivery better. But, uh, you know, I'm not holding my breath for it. I'm, I'm quite happy. I bought an e-bike this year. I bought an electric trials motorcycle. So there you go. I bought an e-bike. Yeah, it's got a throttle. It's got a number plate on the back. And, you know, it's... it. And it was 40% cheaper than the top of the range e-bike that was just launched from a big manufacturer who shall remain nameless. Incredible value for money in terms of, in terms of that. And I'm not going to say it's the same, it's the thing for everyone. I just see e-bikes as only causing problems in, uh, in, areas where there's a lot of trail usage i just see we're already looking at land use regulation changing in the uk anyway we have we have a a land access system where access where you're not on a powered vehicle is called trespass um but it isn't a criminal offence so it's not dealt with in the same way it's not it's it's not dealt with in the same way as let's say a, a motoring offence so at the moment we are riding trails that are completely illegal in the uk um nobody's riding the legal trails anymore everyone's riding trails that people have been building during the lockdown and you know the trails that we've been cultivating over the last few years Pretty much everyone of a certain level only rides illegal trails. And that's fine, because like I said, it's not a criminal offence. But coming down the line is legislation that will make that trespass an actual criminal offence. Then we're into a very different... Then we're into a different, very different situation. We're in the same situation as mountain bikers, as motorcyclists were kind of 15 years ago when nobody liked the off-road car drivers and the off-road motorcycle riders and the horses and the walkers and the mountain bikers were all trying to get those guys off the same trails. And I think we'll end up in a similar situation with the mountain bikes because the classification of the e-bike is a mountain bike, um, unless we have a different classification in law. Um, we're going to have access problems with mountain bikes as well. We'll see. Yeah, that's my worry with e-bikes too, is just figuring out how to get them classified properly and designating trails 
for that are permissible to be used with a motor and yeah i mean to me i i would open up more and i think the 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 the, the solution lies not in legislation but the legislation but um at the same time um we've got to deal with what we've got to deal with and you know there's a flip side to that as well the 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 idea of access to the land usually is by established use and you know if you were a big landowner and you were looking at the sort of strava heat map over your land you'd probably be worried now because <laughs> the strava heat maps at the moment are showing decades of use on trails that are technically illegal at what point do they become legal once people have used them for decades surely yeah it's a challenge yeah to bring it back around to your work with nikolai and the geometron projects a little bit so one thing i was i've been curious to ask about so you know we've got you had the the g16 out for a while we talked about mine really phenomenal bike and pretty far ahead of its time in a bunch of ways and one thing that i found interesting is that you know over the last however many years with most companies you see them roll out their new updated model the new version of whatever it may be and there's always the same mantra that we've talked about already of just making everything longer lower slacker yada yada and then uh, a little while ago you guys brought out the g1 which was in a lot of ways the sort of update to the the g16 and it featured some new adjustability for geometry and to handle different wheel sizes and so on, but didn't really go much longer, lower, slacker, et cetera. It's got some geometry tweaks and some refinements and so on. But do you kind of feel like you've just got things into the range that you want them to be and are kind of in the the point of doing subtle tweaks and refinements rather than really needing to make any further sea change in geometry? Or how do you look at that? Yeah, I mean, I think we got to a point, we got to a bike that kind of handles quite intuitively. And if we've got adjustability up or down, shorter or longer, steeper or slacker, from that central point, um, shorter travel, longer travel, all of these things, if you've got adjustment around that central point, that there's a fairly good consensus is cool then we can push it a little bit further for the for the faster rider or the or the more aggressive rider and we can pull it back in a little bit for the rider that remains more upright or or does a different thing with his bike but i think that the angles we've tried we've tried slacker on the head angle we i mean i've ridden down to like 56 57 degrees um we tried longer you know within the limits of the tubes that nikolai can buy and uh we've got you know quite long you know quite long swing arms already but we've had longer ones built so that we can test and each one brings certain things to the ride but loses other things at the same time. So to keep that kind of blend of the parts, if you make the bike too long in the front end and the rider ends up too far over the front, then the rider will be quite dynamic 
if you're only looking at it in terms of the rear wheel because there'll be less weight on the rear wheel. But in situations where you want the front wheel to be light and you want to be able to manual and ride off the back in certain ways, then that particular setup won't work. Now, on most flat-out racetracks, the longer one will be slightly quicker, but it will be less rewarding to ride. It will be a battle in some places. Um, whereas if you can put yourself in the middle, you get the, the possibility to be dynamic with the bike in both directions. And, uh, you know, we see, we we built that adjustability into the G1 because we spend a lot of time face-to-face -face with customers. We don't have a marketing department to tell our customers what we want them to know we invite them and we get them to ride our bikes and we ride with them and we watch them ride the bikes and we can see whether they're comfortable with the bike or not you just watch the rider and then the more riders that you ride with the more you learn about how to adjust the different elements, the adjustable elements of the bike to make that rider comfortable with it. And um, sometimes the smallest change can make a rider who looked really uncomfortable suddenly become really comfortable and have more space on the bike, have put, be putting more weight through feet and hands, be looking further ahead. You know, you can see the change in a rider. And sometimes it takes a procession of random adjustments to try and find what's going to work for some customers because they don't respond to the things that you're used to people responding to. But why should they? Every rider is different and every rider is, um, every rider has their own restrictions to work with, you know, whether that be you know, old injuries or weaknesses and strengths in certain places and, or, you know, whatever it is, uh, everyone's got their own strengths and weaknesses and you've got to build, build the bike to suit them. And that's more the reason we built the G1. It wasn't anything to do with the, the fact that we didn't think the old one was slack enough or long enough or, you know, what we did with the G1 was start with the same geometry it's it works for most all our customers so we started with that and worked on the things that we couldn't get from the g16 yeah makes a lot of sense and a quote of yours that i found in doing some prep for this episode was that uh to quote move any bicycle geometry measurement and that includes wheel diameter in one direction and it will make something better and something worse and I think that's 100% right. You you know, it's all a matter of trade-offs and just finding the most appropriate balance between all of those different variables and uh it's not like any one thing is objectively better at everything across the board, right? And Yeah. And and the, there's a thing that we do with our customers that, you know, sometimes seems a little low rent and you can see people sort of rolling their eyes and tutting as we ask them to do it. And we asked them just to do some, you know, basically shitty turns on a bit of tarmac 
in essentially what is a car park. We're just telling them just to turn left and right, pretend there's turns. We don't even put cones out for them. You know, just pretend there's turns. And then when you reach the end, there's a bigger area where you can turn around. So, and in that, if you know what you're looking for, you can see an awful lot of stuff. First of all, you can see how a person reacts with the bicycle. Um, somebody that's comfortable on the bike will normally play with it and will normally be the boss of it. Somebody that isn't comfortable with it or is scared of it will be off off the back or stiff or immobile. Um, there'll be lots of clues. And literally by changing clickers this way and that you can change the dynamic geometry of the bike enough that you can get a rider to go from sort of uh taking stabs on a long corner we call it thruppany bitting because we had we've got coins that don't have uh, round edges you know like taking several bites of one corner you're steering then straightening up then steering then straightening up you can get a rider that goes from that to leaning it in and pushing the bike all the way over onto the side of the tire where where it's a lot more stable and then just allowing the weight to transfer the weight from the front tire to both tires to the rear tire as it goes through the corner and you get that beautiful natural movement and and even with someone that's really aggressive and that is um really good at handling the bike you can just change the weight balance of the bike enough that whilst that rider is already in charge of the bike you can make him notice that right the front nobles of that it's the nobles on the front tire that are that are pushing here right let me do this and then all of a sudden you get the nobles on the rear tire pushing and then you, you can play with that balance then when you know when you've seen it and when it's been pointed out to you it's incredible how much difference you can make to someone's riding with just a few clicks on the clickers um to try and get that balance and this is what, you know, when you, the, the, a lot of people say, yeah, I got the motion instruments or whatever it is, or I've got this, or I've got the suspension setup gizmo, wizmo, giz, I don't know, whatever they're called, shock whiz. And you know, it's like, well, that's great, but it can't see you on the bike. It doesn't know whether you're comfortable or not. All it, all it senses is what the suspension is doing. It doesn't know whether I, you know, I can look into a rider's eye and see that he's terrified coming down a section. Um, or I can look into a rider's eyes and see that he's really happy with that section. The, the electronics can't do that. All they can do is put your suspension within a, a range of settings that they think you should be at. Um, but it's more complex than that. Um, and I think that's, that's what we found it. it we, we started off all about numbers. So everything was about finding the clicker settings that worked and the shim stacks that worked and writing things down in books and spreadsheets and, and having a set of angles that worked and fixed parameters that we knew worked. And it's, we've, 
totally gone away from that now and we don't get the angle finder out anymore we hardly get the tape measure out anymore and we don't write down any settings until we've finished with a customer we don't write them down when we start we don't want a fixed reference we want to respond to the customer's input so it's become less of a, a mathematical thing now and it's more of a craft it's a really rewarding process yeah interesting to sort of think about the idea that there's no sort of mathematically attainable, objectively correct way to set anything up. It's a, there's so much variation from the rider and personal preference and body proportions and all manner of other variables that you can't make any kind of global, broad, applicable to everybody sorts of decisions off of. And no, no, I mean that you can. You can make decisions and get within a within a ballpark or within an envelope, and that's really useful for a lot of people. I'm not, you know, not dismissing that. It's a, that's a really useful process for a lot of people just to even think about that. I think now the uh, times moved on beyond that, and people, more and more people, are starting to look at it as a as a craft rather than a, a mathematical procedure. I think that's partly, you know, due to the fact that as a sport, we've come to accept coaching as a thing in the last few years. And because of that, more people are watching riders and trying to spot things. You know, it, we've, we've come a long way from the beginning of coaching where everyone was telling you to get into this weird yoga position that the best riders in the world were putting themselves in, let's face it, but they were riding bikes that were way too small. And not many people are going to feel comfortable in those uh, stretched positions. Um, and not many people have the hip flexibility at my age to be able to get anywhere near those positions. So uh, having a bike that's big enough to allow you a bigger envelope of possible riding positions can only be can only be good but the coaching thing has definitely set more people off trying to figure out what riders are doing wrong and i think that's that that can only be a good thing another thing that i've been curious to ask about and uh this is Another thing that sort of got sparked by a quote of yours that I saw, and this, and this also dovetails with something that I kind of have been musing about for a while and talked a bit about on an earlier episode of, of this podcast, I think is episode 53, if I recall. Basically, the way I framed it was that it sort of seems like 29ers are taking over the world and the vast majority of new bikes rolling out are, are 29ers. And the thought that I had is that I really think that there are a lot of people who bought their first 29er within the last few years after bike geometry improved immensely also and are essentially just over attributing the amazingness of their new bike, which is certainly better than what they had been on previously to the 29 inch wheels rather than the improvements in geometry and tires and suspension and things that we've also seen in that time frame. And uh, the quote that of yours that I saw was basically that this is from a few years back, but you said something to the effect of we probably could have just stuck with 26 inch wheels if we'd gotten geometry nailed down better sooner. And 
different ways of getting at the same thought, I think, really. Curious to how you look at that these days and how you are running your own personal G1 since that bike's adaptable enough to run full 27.5, full 29 or a mullet setup. I run exclusively 29 front wheel. I haven't haven't run a 27.5 front wheel for a long time. But when I'm riding on the more interesting trails or steeper trails or technical trails, I run that mullet. Um, So 29 front, 27.5 rear. Uh, and if I'm going off to do distance or riding in a new area where maybe I want to limit myself to a sort of cross-country style ride before I smash myself to pieces on terrain that I'm not familiar with, then I'll ride my lightweight 29 XC wheels. Um, it's as simple as that. I've got a set of really lightweight 29 wheels for doing distance and um going places and seeing scenery and i've got a set of 471 rims 29 front 27.5 rear with stickier tires for riding more interesting stuff 29 will probably end up being the future and that's not because i think it's better than 27.5 i just think it's where the tire development is um and that's where you end up having to ride the best tire. That's the tire is the thing between us and the weeds, you know, us falling off into the weeds. So if the best tires are at 27.5, that's what you'll ride. Um, and the, certainly the first 29er tires were pretty sketchy, really lightweight, really paper thin sidewalls. Um, and really hard to keep them on the rims. Um, and then things have changed and tyre technology's come on and the 29 tyres are actually pretty good. Um, and they'll stop developing the 27.5 tyre at some point and we'll all be on 20, 29 pairings. Personally, I like the way the smaller rear wheel steers, but if you're... Uh, an aggressive enough rider you can make the 29 do some you know amazing things uh i'm i'm not that rider so i tend to like the the smaller rear wheel finishes off the turn with a slightly tighter steering arc you've got a steering wheel at the front but you've also got a steering wheel at the rear obviously the front one sets you up for the turn and deals with all of the beginning of the turn of as the sort of Newtonian physics of you and the bike main chassis weight falling onto the front tire gets the the bicycle direction changed. But as you start to get halfway through the turn and your Newtonian physics is starting to spread your weight between the front and rear wheel it starts to feel like the rear wheel's doing more turning on the smaller wheel. It feels like it's pushing on less and relying on you to dig that front tire in less so you can more intuitively allow it to finish its own turn uh, rather than forcing it to finish the turn and, and rather than being super aggressive at the beginning and middle of the turn. Um, which suits me, like I said, it doesn't suit everyone. And I'm also, I'm a, uh, I'm getting older and I still like to ride steep stuff and I 
do ride the brakes a lot and if I'm on the bigger rear wheel it follows that if the big rear wheel doesn't slow down over the bumps then it means that that bigger rear wheel isn't slowing me down as I'm grabbing the brake over the bumps <laughs> so I'm going to need to use the front brake which really upsets the handling if I'm using it in the turn so for me the 27.5 on the back you know does some things that suit my riding yeah that all makes sense and I, I really think that you know as much as 29 inch wheels do some things well there is still a lot to be said for the way 27.5 wheels handle and I also just have worries about fitting shorter people onto longer travel 29ers in particular. You get less room to move around on the bike and get off the back, even on a you know comparatively long bike. You have a taller front end that results from big wheel 170, 180 millimeter, whatever travel fork that's long enough to clear a 29 inch wheel. And I think there are a lot of people who just are better served with the sizing of a smaller wheel than a 29er also. Yeah, and I think, but that's, you know, those days are gone. Uh, we won't be going back to smaller wheels. Um, I think it'll, it'll just keep, it'll just keep going. Hopefully 29 is where we end up. Um, interestingly, as I said, I bought the electric trials motorcycle um, this year and the diameter of those wheels is very much more like an old 26 um with a decent sized tire so the the outside diameter of the trials wheels is a lot smaller than a 29 inch mountain bike tire and you first ride it and you're riding it really stiff because i've come from an enduro motorcycle and i've been riding mountain bikes um that are big enough for me with decent suspension and I'm riding this thing really stiff and I'm putting the wheel into holes and I start thinking oh maybe I should just put a mountain bike front end on this and put that swap the wheels around and take that balloon of a rear tire off and put the the front trials tire on the back mm, you know maybe I should do some you know make 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 it a little different and then and then you learn to ride to the strengths of the bike and you realize that it gets over things pretty well. And when you look at, you know, what Tony Boo can ride on a trials motorcycle, you don't criticize the motorcycle anymore. It's like, it actually works pretty darn well, but I just have to change the way I meet this motorcycle. I... I shouldn't be riding this like I'm riding my enduro motorcycle. I should be doing a different job with it. And um, and once you get your head around that, you just deal with it. But that's happened with mountain biking. You look at the 26-inch... Look at the trails we rode on 26-inch wheels. Look at the trails we rode on 27.5-inch wheels. And look at the trails we ride now on 29 or hybrid. They're different. And the lines we choose are different. Um, there's, there is a difference. And if I was being grumpy, I could be negative about that. But I could also be positive about it and say, you know, the sport is moving on. Things are changing. Yeah, I don't want to be grumpy about everything in the sport. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, change isn't always bad, I suppose. No, no, absolutely not. Change, change, change for marketing's sake. I, I will, you know, argue with that as you know until the cows come home. But um, in the end, if the change is going to come, then we've got to deal with it. You know, whatever tires are the best tires. A whatever size wheel we'll put our tires on, as the as the years go by. If it turns out to be thirty three inch, then it turns out to be thirty three inch. You know, if that's where the tire development goes, that's where we'll have to go. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I guess I'd just like to think that sort of we as consumers or people who are, well, in my case, writing about these things can sort of hopefully have a, a little bit of a hand in saying, no, we do want to keep other options around and hopefully steer things such that that tire development does continue for, say, 27.5. I mean, I, I think you're right that should quality 27.5 tires disappear, then that's going to force people into 29ers. But I just I don't know that we need to be so fatalistic as to think that that's an inevitable direction that the world is going to go. No, no, uh, and you know, if, if 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 we had any sway with tire manufacturers, we you know we'd definitely be uh, looking for uh, some slightly different things. But you know, you think back to the tires that we used to think were you know the hot trail tires on twenty six, and then twenty seven five and twenty nine, and and they are doing different things. You think of the the you know the hot rear tire for a lot of trail a lot of trail riding i'd say in uk europe um you know that a combination of what were fairly easy trails with you know quite a lot of cambers or um berms to catch you the rear tire of choice for a while was the the lust carcass cross mark you know it's like a a bmx design tire that rolls like Fuck, it's really fast rolling. Uh, it's got half a decent carcass to it. Doesn't weigh very much. Can you imagine putting that kind of tire onto a 29 rear wheel now? Um, we've got so used to having much grippier, much more solid carcass tires now. We couldn't ride that. So maybe, you know, the, the, the rose-tinted spectacles of our 26-inch days you know, we should basically take them off and look at what we've got, you know. A nice Magic Mary Super Soft 29 um, front tyre is a thing of beauty. Um, you know, why why would we want to go back to, I don't know, High Roller 1, um, XO Carcass 26, you know? <laughs> why would we? Tires certainly have improved, no question about it. Yeah, you just... You, you, you go where the development is. So if that's, you know, if the industry says we're on 35-inch front, 33-inch rear in 10 years' time, that's where we'll be. That's just where we are. It won't it won't suit everyone, but, you know, that's it'll mean that the sport is like basketball, only tall players. So... <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah, here's to hoping we can... Things can at least settle down and... Uh, yeah, 26 you know, ain't with... dead. <laughs> Pretty dead, but uh, <laughs> hopefully we can stick with what we've got at least. Yeah, yeah, I think we will. Um, 
Honestly, for the next few years, I think most of the bicycle companies will be so busy trying to keep up with demand. Um, they'll be way too busy to start designing any new standards. So that'll be a good thing for a few years. So That might be the uh, silver lining to the current supply issues that the whole bike world is saying. That's a, yeah, that's an interesting framing of it. But yeah, yeah let's hope that. so. <laughs> well, Chris, we've been on for a good while, and I should probably let you get going here. But uh, just sort of to to wrap things up, one thing we do like to ask around here, uh, you know, name of the podcast is Bikes and Big Ideas, after all. Do you have a final big idea to share with everybody? Everybody should learn how to do wheelies. That's my thoughts. Everybody can do wheelies. Everybody should do wheelies. They're the most rewarding thing to do. And I think that's how to make the world happy. If it there's nobody in the world that can't pull a wheelie and be that can pull a wheelie and be grumpy whilst doing it. I'm all for it. That's what I'd say. Let's teach the world to wheelie. That's pretty good. I like that. Wheelies for world peace, we can call it. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine uh Vladimir um Putin? hoist in the front wheel he'd certainly be a lot happier fellow uh he'd have less bad to say about uh uh navalny if he was concentrating on getting the front wheel up loves back wheel vladimir putin loves back wheel <laughs> perfect i think that is the note to go out on chris it's been been a great time thanks for coming on and uh, really enjoyed the conversation hopefully it wasn't too rambling and uh, didn't drop too many f-bombs um but uh sober that's a good start that's the first podcast that i've done sober so yeah sweet <laughs> well you did great been a lot of fun thanks again thanks david cheers dude well, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to Chris for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.